this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello and welcome to the TSRA podcast. My name is Felicia Munsami and I'm one of the general surgery residents at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I'm also one of the four three uh, thoracic surgery track residents and today I'm joined with Dr. Doug Matheson who is our previous chief of thoracic surgery. So thank you for joining me Dr. Matheson. Happy to do it. Look forward to it. So for this podcast we'll be discussing the sleeve lobectomy. We'll begin the discussion with a quick case presentation. So our patient is a 70-year-old female with a 30-pack year smoking history who presents with a chronic dry cough and new small volume hemoptysis. A chest x-ray shows consolidation in the right upper lobe concerning for pneumonia, and a subsequent CT of the chest reveals a 2.4 by 3.4 centimeter mass located in the right upper lobe bronchus without infiltration of the pulmonary vessels in the hilum and mediastinum. So Dr. Matisse, what are the next steps in the workup of this patient? Well, the next steps really are what you do for anybody with suspected cancer. You would want to clear them medically. You certainly want to evaluate their pulmonary functions. Sometimes they need ventilation perfusion scans. Remember, sleeve lobectomies were designed as an alternative to those who couldn't tolerate a pneumonectomy. But pneumonectomy is always something you at least have to have planned for, have in the back of your mind. Uh, you never know what you're going to find at the time of surgery. So PFTs and, and I would say liberal use of ventilation perfusion scans. Uh, PET scans, obviously, plus or minus a brain uh, MRI. In a 70-year-old patient, I would uh, err on the side of doing more so you don't have some unexpected finding. And some people might argue with that in somebody who has no symptoms. but Again, age and the technical uh, difficulties of the procedure, to me, uh, dictate that you uh, get all the tests you need. Uh, and then you need to have some way to get a tissue diagnosis. And bronchoscopy, which uh, allows you, should be, to see it. Uh, and EBUS to stage the mediastinum if you're in there and your suspicion, uh, both on uh, uh, imaging and bronchoscopy, is that it's a tumor, then I would do that at the same time. What are the most com common indications for a sleeve lobectomy that we should be aware of? Well, most importantly, it's an anatomically suitable lesion. In other words, you see, uh, you see a tumor that's uh, involving the origin of uh, one of the orifices to the lobes. Any lobe is you know, uh, uh, available for a sleeve procedure. Some are technically a little more demanding, but it's an anatomically suitable um, finding. You want to have uh, the proximal and distal airway above and below the uh, lobar orifice to look normal, um, and that most of the time the indications for a sleeve uh, would be a tumor, a malignant tumor or a benign tumor, carcinoids, mucoepidermoids, and then there are benign indications, not quite what we're talking about here in this patient, but uh, things like uh, trauma, Wegener's, TB, uh, they can all present with strictures that look like uh, uh, something you would need to do a sleeve uh, in order to uh, repair the injury or the, you know, the TB stricture. So those are the typical indications. And I would say that the other advice I've always given uh, uh, residents or any thoracic surgeon that asks 
is that you need to understand the principles of sleeve lobectomy because while most of the time you know that you you can do a sleeve beforehand, you see something at the orifice and you say, yes, it's, it's something you should do a sleeve. But sometimes you find that exploration, uh, a malignant node fixed to the origin of the bronchus, um, something that you didn't really anticipate or an unsuspected positive frozen section, you know, something that looks normal, but on frozen there's tumor there. So it's pretty hard to break out of an operation, go look it up in a textbook. So I think any thoracic surgeon needs to be intimately familiar with the details of how to do a sleeve resection. What are some contraindications to performing the procedure in, in a patient that otherwise would be a candidate? Medical contraindications, of course. Uh, somebody who has a, you know, ischemic heart disease, making them at very high risk. Uh, and then the others are kind of relative. I would say high-dose radiation, and high-dose steroid. Some of those people you can still do sleeves on. If it doesn't heal, then the risk of that is, is death, really, if you have a catastrophic uh, separation and a pulmonary artery fistula. Whereas pneumonectomy, you might end up with a, a fistula, but it's manageable. The same is sort of true with steroids. Um, I, I think, again, you'd want to wean them down if you had low doses of steroids, you know, kind of physiologic 5 to 10 milligrams of prednisone. You can probably do a sleeve and not uh, not worry about it. You'd probably, in either case of radiation or steroids, and you've elected to do a sleeve, you'd want to cover that bronchus with something more than just pleura, pericardial fat, usually uh, an intercostal muscle. And neoadjuvant therapy is not a contraindication. So the typical neoadjuvant therapy uh, with chemotherapy is certainly not a contraindication. Chemoradiotherapy also not a contraindication. The dose of radiation is lower. Uh, it's separated only by you know a month and a half or two months. And generally, those patients will heal okay. There is a slight increased risk to neoadjuvant therapy and, and complications, but it's not enough that it would dissuade you. And so once we're ready to divide the bronchus, how should we make sure that we divide it in the right place? Well, mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's apparent on the on bronchoscopy that there is no involvement. But the way to safeguard is always to then slip a bronchoscope down. You can do it through a single lumen if that's what you're doing, or a, a double lumen. Um, you can get the PD bronchoscope down that lumen and look at the uh, lobe that's uh, uh, involved. Uh, and you can take, usually I've used a TB needle and put it through the bronchus so, so you can see it. And if it looks like it's in a clear part of the bronchus, then you mark it with a stitch. And you can do that both proximally and distally to the we're talking mostly right upper lobe tumors mm -hmm. now, um, and that way you can uh, be relatively assured that you're not going to make an incision through tumor. What is your preferred method for performing the anastomosis of the bronchus? I, I would say there are a couple of things that are probably true uh, of any method you choose. Um, absorbable sutures. I've always liked Vicryl, um, especially if you're tying it, it. It's a true knot, and when you tie it, uh, the others, you know, have a little bit of give to it. If you use PDS or something like that, there's always a little give to that, and it requires a thicker knot. So I've always used absorbable sutures, forovicrals for the anastomosis. And the other common thing, I think, which is true for most people, the, the, uh, regardless of how they do the anastomosis, is the use of traction sutures. Uh, and I use, have always typically used two ovicrals for that. 
and have gone around a ring, both proximally and distally in the mid-lateral position, so on both sides, and usually at least a ring uh, or more above the line of anastomosis um, for two reasons. One is that it will interfere with placing anastomotic sutures, but, but you also like sometime to have a little give between the, um, when you do the anastomosis, uh, the intercartilaginous membrane um, does provide a little bit of give and sometimes it allows the, the two uh, cartilages that you're sewing together to mold a little bit better. So it's a very minor point, but one that I try to pay attention to every time. And then how you do it, uh, as I said, I, I like individual sutures. I don't like running sutures. Some people like to run the back row. It makes no sense to me to do that, but obviously it works. Um, I think there's the theoretical risk of ischemia, the theoretical risk of it loosening as you tie it down or, or add other sutures or bring the two ends together. And if it fails, then you've got, you know, essentially half the bronchus that mm -hmm. fails. Um, so I've always liked uh, an open, interrupted technique. Um, you can do it one of two ways. Um, the standard way has always been to place all the sutures, clip them to the drapes, um, bring the traction sutures together, and then tie each suture individually, usually in reverse order that you place them. And the back row of sutures in that method is done by feel. And some mm -hmm. people find that hard to do, takes a little bit of experience, and if you're doing it the first time, it's probably uh, a little more difficult. Sometimes if you have an inexperienced resident that you're taking through a sleeve, what you can do is um, use the traction sutures, pull them mostly together, take some kind of schnitt or something to hold that position so that the bronchus is pretty much together, but a little bit of separation. Mm -hmm. And then the back row, I've, I've done this a number of times, place the sutures individually. It'll end up with the knots on the inside, and there's always been sort of a feeling that you shouldn't leave the knots on the inside. I, I adhered to that for, I'd say, 90% of my career, and then one day I, I found I had a reason not to do it that way. And it turns out it's, it works just fine. There's no risk of granulation infections <laughs> yes. and in, in a month or six weeks if you bronchoscope the patient you wouldn't even see the suture so that that's an easier technique and okay. what you do is you place all the sutures direct vision uh, you clamp them keep them in order and then once you've got the um, back row completed like that I usually complete it all the way to either traction suture then you uh, you've got the traction sutures keeping the two ends together and then uh, you tie them under direct vision on the inside of the bronchus to the point of the traction sutures. So once you have them tied, you can kind of inspect it. You can check for any loose suture. If it looks like you need an additional suture, you can add it. And then you revert back to the standard way of placing interrupted sutures with the knots ending up on the outside. And that gradually then brings the front uh, the two front walls together as you tie them. So th that I think is actually easier um, mm -hmm. for the inexperienced surgeon or the young resident. I think it's easier. Uh, and I'd say I, if I had to choose, I'd choose that way to do it as opposed to the old way of placing them and then tying the back, back row by feel, although either works. And the other one I think is just easier to teach and it's easier to conceptualize. 
and identify any problems that you might have in the anastomosis. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure your use, your preferred <coughs> use of dissolvable suture also decreases the risk of granulation tissue formation too, so that makes sense. It used to be that you used non-absorbable sutures, and mm -hmm. when I was uh, at your level of training, every Friday was spent in the operating room with Dr. Grillo pulling mm -hmm. out granulation secondary to non-absorbable sutures. So right. once, once we left that, uh, that problem went away. If we encounter a large size discrepancy or tension between the two ends of the bronchi, what are some ways we can tackle those problems? If you anticipate tension, uh, the simplest thing to do is take down the inferior pulmonary ligament, create a, an incision in the pericardium, usually as a U-shaped incision beneath the inferior pulmonary vein. Uh, just that simple maneuver will give you a centimeter, centimeter and a half of relaxation. There is this little attachment in the interatrial groove that sometimes you need to uh, dissect to give you that mobility, um, but that's pretty easy to do. If you need more relaxation, let's say you've taken out all the right mainstem and all the bronchus intermediates and you've got the lower lobe to essentially the carina, then you can do a complete uh, pericardial release, circle it and circle it uh, all the way around. Um, and that will give you a lot of mobility and should allow any sleeve procedure to be done. You have to be careful you don't injure the phrenic nerve. Mm -hmm. But uh, in doing that, uh, that then should relieve uh, any issue about tension. The proximal right main stem is always going to be bigger uh, circumference and diameter than even the bronchus intermedius. And the further down you go in the bronchus intermedius, uh, the bigger an issue this is. But if it's just a straightforward one, usually you can make up for that size discrepancy by placing the sutures very carefully, slightly wider apart on the proximal bronchus and slightly closer together on the distal bronchus, mm -hmm. paying very careful attention that you, and that is what uh, I would say I've used overwhelmingly uh, to uh, deal with any size discrepancy. If that's not going to be the case, and that usually comes uh, into play when you uh, um, have to divide the proximal bronchus close to the carina, mm -hmm. and distally you're dealing with just the uh, lower lobe where the tumor has involved the upper and middle lobe to a certain extent. Um, there you do have a size discrepancy, and there are two ways in which you can uh, reduce that discrepancy. Proximally, if you close the membranous wall of the proximal right mainstem bronchus, uh, uh, and, and then you're dealing basically with just a circular ring of cartilage, but you have this um, uh, portion of the membranous wall kind of like a tennis racket. It'll look like mm -hmm. a tennis racket. So the membranous wall is kind of the handle and the racket is the bronchus uh, that you have to uh, deal with. Mm -hmm. That will reduce the size significantly. Some people talk about taking uh, a wedge out of the distal bronchus. It's another way to just, you know, increase that distal uh, diameter and circumference, but I think it comes with the risk that you're, you're dealing then with really fragile structures. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I tend to avoid that. Um, I would always then use an intercostal muscle to cover that just because of the risk of it not healing or developing a fissure. Um, once you've completed the anastomosis, I think you should bronchoscope the patient in the operating room. You want to identify any problem uh, in the operating room, not after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can inflate um, 
the lung, uh, and there's no air leak, and it looks like the lung is inflating, but you know it's because the, there's collateral airflow, uh, and if you bronchoscope, maybe you find that you've twisted it. Maybe the, one of the segmental orifices is blocked. Maybe uh, you know it's uh, occluded with a stitch or just the angulation. So you always want to bronchoscope them. But then if you've done that, um, uh, and there's, it looks okay, but now you discover you have a small air leak anteriorly that you can actually see. Well, uh, the use of an additional suture or two, I think, is the appropriate way to deal with it. If the leak is posterior in the anastomosis and you can't quite see it, uh, then I think you have two possibilities. One of which, of course, is take everything down and uh, do it over. Because you don't want to leave the operating room with an air leak. I also, while I'm thinking about it, mentioned don't put any sealant on the anastomosis either. Sealants can interfere with healing. And so if you're going to use it for air leaks in the parenchyma, make sure you cover the bronchus and don't let anything get on the, on the bronchus. Okay. Um, so if you think you have a small leak, but it's posterior, you can take out the anterior sutures, as many as you need, and gently retract the two edges. Usually you can see that there's a loose suture, there's a gap, there's something that you can repair then from inside the bronchus and again leaving the knots on the inside uh, and then just close the anterior wall. So that, that I would say is the way to deal with both. The individual uh, suture for the small leak, typically I've buttressed that kind of suture with a little piece of uh, uh, pleura, um, rarely pericardium, but again, just to buttress it with something so that you don't tear it uh, when you tie it down. But uh, I think those are the ways to deal with a leak and you wanna identify it because you don't wanna leave the operating room with an air leak. Of course. What are the most common post-operative complications that we should look out for? Yeah, probably, probably the most common complication is torsion of the middle lobe. And you can avoid it almost uh, without fail by tacking the middle lobe and the lower lobe together. Um, it's not uncommon to see complete collapse of the middle lobe in normal circumstances, but the way you distinguish it from torsion is that over time, you'll see an expanding uh, um, consolidation of the middle lobe, which yeah. usually just means it's being engorged by blood because the problem is obstruction of the venous drainage mm -hmm. and you're getting blood to go in there. So that's, that's one tip off. Um, or, Later, the people will get sick. The patients will right. get sick. They'll, they'll get tachycardic. They'll have a fever. Uh, something is different. And then the way you make that diagnosis is a CT with contrast. Um, you can use a PE protocol CT, and you'll see twisting or occlusion of the artery to the middle lobe. Uh, and bronchoscopy, you'll see a twisting or a fish mouthing of the middle lobe orifice. And that should tell you that's what you're dealing with, and it's an emergency. So mm -hmm. most of the time, you can't salvage the middle lobe. Uh, rarely, if you get really lucky, you can untwist it, and it'll pink up and come back to life. But usually, it's going to be necrotic, and you have to do a middle lobectomy. Then you get into the other uh, complications, which are uh, fistulas. Should be rare, 2% or less, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, Strictures, uh, typically you don't see that early on. You may get a hint of something as, that looks ischemic but is intact and you identify it at a month or two. And there are people that um, you bronchoscope and in an unsuspecting way because they haven't had an air leak and they've been doing fine, 
And I think that's an important point is that you should bronchoscope everybody before they leave the hospital. Okay. Uh, and that's to inspect that things are healing properly because you can get somebody who has an impending separation, no sign of an air leak, but you look in there and the cartilage is exposed, it's necrotic, uh, mm -hmm. there's granulation all the way around. And that to me is also a surgical emergency. And uh, usually, usually that means you're going to find yourself uh, needing to do a completion pneumonectomy. But th those are kind of the three I'd say most common complications. Mm -hmm. You can get uh, obstruction of the uh, the artery or the vein, you know, inadvertently. Uh, and again, you have to have uh, you know a high degree of suspicion for that. Um, an artery, if you just do a small branch of an artery, typically that's pretty well tolerated. It's like having a pulmonary embolus. If you had a lot of branches or the main branch, of course, that's a serious issue. Mm -hmm. You can have some. Again, I, I don't think it's ever occurred in, in, in our experience, but you'll see people who do these uh, lobectomies uh, either uh, robotically uh, or uh, thoracoscopically where you can staple the main pulmonary artery. You think you're dealing with a branch. Mm -hmm. That, of course, again, surprisingly, can be fairly well tolerated, but instead of getting better, the people get worse, and you get a CT with contrast, and you see this abrupt... Uh, cutoff of the pulmonary artery. Usually you can't salvage it. Usually it means converting to a, a completion pneumonectomy. And the same is true of the vein. The vein is a little bit bigger issue. Uh, if it's the main vein, well then of course you've got a real problem. But if mm -hmm. it's just a branch, usually there's enough collateral circulation and generally does okay. But I'd say those are the main, main post-op complications. Okay. Um, so returning to our patient scenario, she luckily recovers without complication and is discharged home after bronchoscopy, as you said, um, which was scheduled the day before her discharge that looked that, that the anastomosis was intact and viable. So after patients go home, um, what are some long-term complications that we should look out for if they call into the office, say maybe two weeks later? So the most important uh, scenario that you need to be aware of, it, uh, it's a classic scenario. Somebody has done well, they go home, and they're home for you know, a week or two weeks, and they call and uh, they say, I coughed up a tablespoon of blood. And you, and you think, well, that's very unusual. That should never happen a couple mm -hmm. weeks out. It usually occurs Friday night at about eight o'clock at night. <laughs> of course. So, or the middle of the night. But when you hear that, that to me is a surgical emergency. Uh -huh. You can find out that it's something else, but you have to assume that you have a bronchopulmonary artery fistula, and this is what is referred to as the herald bleed, not the herald ought bleed, but the herald <laughs> that it's telling you that you better act fast because the next time it'll be a, a lethal bleed and they'll uh -huh. die. So when you hear it, drop everything you're doing, get them to the hospital, get them to the operating room, bronchoscope them. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually you'll see something that doesn't look right. There'll be granulations or you'll see a little area of separation on the bronchus. And then you've got to operate immediately. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's oftentimes the worst time to operate in terms of the local conditions. You know, by two weeks, things have kind of started to fibrose and scar in and still some edema so it's a it's a terrible time to have to reoperate on somebody 
And the biggest issue is getting proximal control of the pulmonary artery. Distal control, you can always do manually or by compression, but proximally, uh, you may have to go intrapericardially uh, so as you don't disrupt uh, the area of the fistula. Um, and you get control, if you can get control of the fissure distally, great, but you can usually compress that if you had to. So, uh, and, and then again, Sometimes, sometimes there are, I always thought you could never do this, but it turns out there are rare occasions, usually in somebody who has such compromised lung function that they aren't going to tolerate a completion pneumonectomy. Mm -hmm. And it takes a great deal of judgment because there's a lot at stake if you try to repair it. And it usually means there's just a small millimeter or two millimeter area that you could gently debride, close. And then again, if you haven't used muscle, absolutely mm -hmm. cover it with muscle. Sure. This, this point underscores, in my opinion, the main reason to cover every anastomosis of the bronchus. You, you do it for a couple of reasons, just to provide coverage, some buttressing, maybe some uh, uh, neovascular ingrowth. But I would say equally important to provide separation of that suture line from the nearby pulmonary artery. Uh, you don't ever want to do a circumferential wrap with the intercostal muscle because with the periosteum on it, it can calcify and then constrict it. And, you know, years later, you'll have a problem. But uh, you can also use it just on the anterior surface, the exposed surface of the anastomosis. And posteriorly, there's mediastinal tissue that should serve as a, as a coverage in a buttress. So uh, those are important little points to understand. But the one about getting a call two weeks out, uh, that's an emergency, and it's it's a fistula until proven otherwise. The other things in a delayed fashion, there are some people that you do uh, a sleeve, and it looks ischemic at a week. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, pale. It's not. Uh, it doesn't look normal, but it's intact. If you can delay it, let things quiet down, let the edema subside. Uh, then you have a chance, but most of the time you have to be prepared to do a completion pneumonectomy. Okay. Um, I would make one cautionary tale. The temptation is always if you have a stricture to dilate it. Mm -hmm. And remember when you dilate it, usually what's adherent to the outside of that anastomosis is the pulmonary artery. Mm. And uh, if you haven't separated it with something, in dilating it, uh, you dilate it, but you also tear the pulmonary artery. And, uh, and they can have a fatal hemorrhage. If you had to dilate it, um, I would do it very gingerly. I would do it, uh, you know, pick the, the smallest thing you can use to dilate it. Even if you have to dilate them every other day or every week, mm -hmm. you really can't use a stent. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's usually gonna occlude the, the bronchial orifice. Okay. I'm just thinking about the residents of going back to uh, our discussion about a herald bleed. Um, when that patient comes back, I'm thinking about the resident in the emergency department. Should they even take the time to get a CT scan of the chest or it should just be go straight to the operating room? So the, those are uh, an example. Those situations are example. Whoever gets that call mm -hmm. needs to notify the attending. If the attending gets that call, they need to notify the resident. Mm -hmm. and say that as soon as that patient arrives, you know, type, cross, do what you need to do, uh, start some IVs, but you need to get them to the operating room. You'll, you'll know based on the, 
bronchoscopy if this is what you're dealing with. If you do the bronchoscopy, it looks perfectly normal. Then you've got the reassurance that you have time to work them up, get a CT with contrast, figure out why they had this episode. But you can lose a patient in that brief interval where you send them for some test, uh, and especially if they have this pulmonary artery fistula, mm -hmm. uh, and you don't want to waste time because you can sort it all out in the operating room. If it looks normal, fine. You can go back and you know regroup. But if you see this separation, you see this area of necrosis, then you know that's what you're dealing with. Um, so what do we know uh, about differences in oncologic and mortality outcomes between the two procedures? So there are no randomized studies. The sleeve lobectomy was done as an alternative for those who couldn't tolerate a pneumonectomy. And then as people gained more and more experience, it became the procedure of choice if it's anatomically suitable, an important concept to understand. Mm -hmm. And that really came about because as you uh, gain more and more experience, you realize that the oncologic outcome of a sleeve lobectomy was at least as good as an equivalent pneumonectomy. Um, it's stage dependent, again, like most cancers. So the overall survival that you would accept for both is about 45 to 50%. Where the difference comes, of course, is in the early operative mortality. So pneumonectomies can be anywhere from 5 to 10%, depending on right versus left and all sorts of conditions. But um, sleeves have much less morbidity and much less mortality. Um, and they kind of come in two varieties. Uh, those patients who have compromised pulmonary function typically have a higher mortality, as you might suspect, sure. than those who have normal pulmonary function and have a sleeve. And that was shown in our early series and subsequent series, and others have shown the same thing. The overall sort of mortality, if you took them as a group, uh, would be maybe if a lobectomy is one to one and a half percent, maybe a sleeve is two and a half to three percent, and a corresponding pneumonectomy, you know, somewhere in the eight percent range. So you get lower morbidity, lower mortality with a sleeve, and certainly a better quality of life, which I think, therefore, most people now say if you can do a sleeve, you should do it. And it's part of the reason why there are fewer and fewer pneumonectomies, although I think most of that is related to earlier diagnosis. But certainly there is a period of time where uh, it explained why there are fewer and fewer uh, pneumonectomies because more and more people um, used sleeves as an alternative. Well, I think this is a really high yield topic uh, for residents in general and for the boards. And thank you very much for your time, Dr. Matisse.